0: Hi, and welcome to the Dallas-Based Innovator Show. I'm your host, Andrew Lauder. The interview you're about to listen to is an incredibly special one, and I think you're really gonna enjoy it. It's special for a number of reasons. First and foremost, right off the bat, you're gonna find out that our guest, Robert Plotkin, founding partner of BlueShift IP, a software patent, an AI patent, um, law firm. Robert's not from Dallas. You know Our show is titled Dallas-Based Innovators. But guess what? A lot has changed since this pandemic. A lot of us are working remotely and we are branching out as well. So Robert is our special guest on this show today. He's from Boston. He's probably one of the more interesting men I've ever known. I think if you, if you hear the words patent attorney, you may inherently just turn and run for the hills. Okay. Don't do that for this show. Okay. First and foremost, Robert is an incredible attorney. He is a brilliant man. He has created value for all sorts of companies through patents, through intellectual property, for software and artificial intelligence. He's gonna teach you all about that process, why it's so important, not just to protect yourself and your company, but also as a way to add value to your company. In addition to that, Robert is a bit of a Renaissance man. You'll find out he has his own podcast. You'll find out he's all about mindfulness. He's done a lot of work in that area and he holds a number of patents um, along those lines as well. He's an innovator himself. We're about to get the show started. If you like what you hear, it would mean a lot to us if you subscribed and left us a review. And now enjoy our guests and enjoy the show. Okay, welcome to the show. I'm very excited to have my guest, uh, Robert Plotkin, here with us today. Um, Robert is a founding partner of a, an award-winning IP law firm, patent law firm called Blue Shift IP. Robert has been a leader in obtaining software patents for his clients for over two decades now consistently obtaining software patents for clients even after the Alice Supreme Court decision stopped a number of companies from getting those software patents. I'm sure we're going to dive into that uh, during our conversation. BlueShift IP is an award-winning Boston-based patent law firm specializing in computer technology and software patents. Um, you may have heard there, Boston-based, this is a Dallas-based show, but in the face of COVID, we have adapted and we are branching out uh, in a remote world. And so it's been a pleasure working with Robert. I've wanted to have him on the show for some time now. You know, I'd be remiss if I didn't highlight the fact that he's an MIT-educated computer scientist and engineer. He's got a technical background matched by few. And frankly, you know, Robert's an innovator himself. He's been named inventor and owner on over 25 different patents and patent applications. And if I needed to add to the resume, he's also a, an author, a published author of uh, an, an AI book that I'm sure we'll discuss here in our conversation. So, Robert, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Andrew. Thanks for the the kind words and in the introduction. You bet. You bet. It's always fun to, to have to go on and on and on about the guests. <laughs> it means they've done some really great things. So, uh, I'm extremely excited to have you on the show here. So, Robert... Um, as perhaps you've heard, you know I love giving our guests a good couple of minutes to let them talk about themselves. So if you wouldn't mind, just dive right in and tell us a little bit about uh, yourself.
1: Yeah. So as you said, I am a patent attorney. And for those who don't know, that means I obtain legal protection for my client's innovative technology. And in my case, it's almost always software. Uh, and a patent enables a company to obtain legal protection that they can use to stop their competitors from selling competing products or services. That's the the basic premise Mm -hmm. of a patent. And so that's what I do. I work with software companies and increasingly non-software companies who develop software uh, to obtain patent protection for them so that they can protect themselves against Competitors. I have been doing that for over 25 years. As you said, I've got a background in computer science and engineering so I can speak my client's language. And uh, uh, just there's a couple of myths I'd like mm-hmm. to, uh, without going on about myself, <laughs> it helps explain okay. what I do, you know, and why clients work with me is to dispel some of the myths about software patents, which which explains why companies seek software patents. One of the myths is that uh, software patents are only valuable for really large companies. Uh, that is not true. Most of my clients are small to medium-sized companies who are obtaining patents to defend themselves against larger companies. Uh, in fact, if you are a small company and are sued for soft- for patent infringement by a big company or threatened mm-hmm. with suit, the best defense is to have your own patents that you could use to counter sue with. So that's a myth that they're not useful for small companies. Also, 99% of patents are never used in a lawsuit. For many of my small and medium-sized clients, the major value that the patents provide is in increasing the valuation of the company. The patents are an asset. Uh, And so when clients of mine are looking to obtain funding Uh, or to be acquired, or to go public, having some patents on their books is extremely valuable. And if you've got a growing company that's pre-revenue, for example, and uh, those investors are saying, well, where's the value here? What can we put our fingers on as tangible, quantifiable value? Uh, Having some issued patents is something that you can point to before you've got revenue. Ah, uh, so these are just a few of the myths uh, that that I'd like to point out. And this is why even small and medium-sized companies come to me for patent protection, even if they never intend to use their patents to sue, because that's a lot of a lot of companies come to me and say, "Hey, I don't need it. We don't need patents. We don't intend to sue anyone or block anyone. We want to engage in free competition., uh, we don't want to squelch competition. And my response is, well, you don't need to. Just use your patents defensively. And that's how they're used almost all the time.
0: Now, and I'll tell you, Robert, that's why I, I wanted to have you on the show, even though it does break my Dallas based rule here, because (laughs) it's, um, as we've gotten to know each other, as we've worked together, I've, my eyes have opened up, frankly. I mean, I think I've always kind of in the back of my mind known, Hey, you gotta, why don't we patent something? And you know, that, that sounds cool. Let's do that. Like, but I, I've gotten to realize how important it is from so many perspectives. You mentioned protection, you mentioned value, you know, it could alter uh, rather positively the valuation of a company, but um, that's with my audience, the fact that we focus on innovation. I, I think if you're not thinking patents and protecting your innovation, you're, you've got, you're creating a huge gap and a huge problem for yourself. Right
1: yeah and again let's say for small and medium sized, if anyone's listening who's in such a company so if you're at a yeah if you're at a small or medium-sized company uh and you then are sued or threatened with suit uh, for patent infringement by a big company that can be a bet the business type of event and at that point if you haven't already filed for and obtained patents it's going to be too late for you to do it because it takes several years to obtain a patent. So it's so yet another reason why obtaining defensive patents is something uh, really worthwhile doing early on. And I find a lot of early stage, uh, even growing companies, it, that's not on their radar screen.
0: That's right. So Robert, I, I love to talk about how we met, because I think it's a rather you know unique story. And I think it shamelessly plugs a couple of different <laughs> things here too. Um, But I'll tell you, I'll kind of give you my perspective. Yeah. And then maybe we can hear your perspective. But um, I was made aware about an organization coming to Dallas called ProVisors. And I want to give a shout out to a friend of mine named Peter Arminetti. He is based out of Boston and runs a a firm that provides uh, CFO advisory services. We've worked together in the past and funny story with this I hate even sharing this I probably should stop myself but <laughs> because he's from Boston I'm from Dallas and we work together he he started calling me Big Country <laughs> which I think if you know me probably does not fit very well but that's part of the fun uh, so anyway he sent me an email he's like hey Big Country we have got provisors coming to Dallas you should look into them so he made the introduction I met with Mike Monet who was um, helping to launch the Dallas uh, market here uh, we had a good conversation. A couple days later, I got a, a LinkedIn message from Glennie Green, mm-hmm. who's over at Jaffe uh, Marketing. Yeah, they have a Fort Worth office here. And she tells me, hey, I've got a client who wants to dig deeper into the world of AI. Uh, would you be open to meeting with them? I, met, I got your name through ProVisors. And I'm like, holy smokes, I just heard about ProVisors just like <laughs> two or three days ago this has to be a setup, you know? Yeah. And uh, sure enough, we we t- uh, messaged back and forth. She introduced us and I suppose the rest is history. Yeah, yeah it's
1: absolutely, yeah. So let me say from my side, uh, I have been interested in the impact of AI on patents and on the ability to patent AI technology for very long time. I started writing about this back in 2000. Yeah. Uh, through academic papers, kind of theoretically about intellectual property and how it could apply to to AI and other kinds of automation. And then it culminated in a book I published in uh, 2009 called The Genie in the Machine. The Ah, subtitle was How Computer Automated Inventing is is Revolutionizing Law and Business. So this was all about basically uh, software. At the time, it was largely... uh, genetic and evolutionary algorithms, but also neural networks, how they were being used to, uh, engage in automated design of things that could be patented from airplane wings to circuits to software. And there mm-hmm. were already examples at that time of computer generated inventions that had been patented. So, you know, I was been in this for a long time. I do have the technical background that's, you know, known about the technology for a long time, but, uh, as you know, in the last few years, as AI has become so much more powerful, prominent, widespread, uh the issue of how the patent law and patent system should deal with AI has gained a lot more attention. The US Patent Office Absolutely. has formed its own committee on this topic, and I decided well I'd like to re Emer- re-engage publicly around this uh, mm-hmm. to help raise awareness. Uh, and because I had been somewhat out, when I published the book in 2009, <laughs> it mostly got attention from a, a small number of specialists, both computer scientists and a handful of people in the IP world who got it. But most people were saying, what are you talking about? This isn't real. Right. You know, were is- ahead of your time. <laughs> this is real. What are you talking about? Uh, computers, you know, inventing things. Yeah. And I was saying, I realize there's not too much of it going on, but but trust me, it will happen. And it did take about 10 years for it to really become a, a, a dominant real-world phenomenon. So I wanted to get back into the fray, so to speak, and I knew I needed to uh, re-familiarize myself with the cutting edge of AI and where things stood both technologically and from an industry perspective. So I was looking mm-hmm. for a consultant who could help educate me about that. And Glennie put me in touch with you. And I will toot your horn by saying, you know, what I had in mind was someone who had a mix of technical knowledge and industry knowledge, pr- preferably who wasn't in house at a single AI company, because I wanted right. someone who had a broader industry perspective, wasn't also going to try to sell me on a single company's way of thinking about things. And so when I got in touch with you, I thought, well, you're perfect for this. Awesome. yeah. And so, you know, we've worked together. You educate me about what's uh, what the latest and greatest is. And it's been really helpful for me in uh, getting better at communicating with people That's in great. the
0: AI world. That's great. I, I'm glad we could help because I'll tell you, when, when we met, I was um, pleasantly surprised, amazed, um, with, okay, here's a lawyer, but he knows probably more about AI than I do, <laughs> especially from the technical standpoint. Um, what am I going to be you know, sharing with him that he may not already know? And so, that was a, a delicate balance for me to strike there. But um, uh, uh, kind of closing the loop here, um, I mentioned Peter Arminetti. He has a firm called Nevera Group. Uh, if you're if you're looking for those CFO type services, you know, reach out to Peter. I mentioned Provisors, which is a wonderful networking group for you know, uh, people that own and, and provide service uh, professional services that we're a part of there um, as well. Um, and then I mentioned Glennie and Jaffe PR a marketing firm that uh, we've become greatly acquainted with, and uh, they're phenomenal. I love Glennie; she's my my group lead over at ProVisors and I've gotten to know her and she's been phenomenal. So I just want to make sure we give it, them all their, their shout outs.
1: Yeah. And you know, I'll say something about ProVisors, which I think may be uh, of interest to your listeners, which is, as you said, ProVisors is a, is a national network of professional uh, advisors, right. lawyers, consultants, accountants, CFOs. But if you are not such a person, uh, but you're at a, a tech company, for example, Uh, the reason, you know, you, you could bet the way in which you could benefit from provisors is that because it helps all of us connect with each other. I found already, even though I haven't been a member for too long, it helps me create and become part of distributed teams made up of the best people for each function.
0: Wow. So we, you know, I
1: probably heard the, uh, the Hollywood model. I think Dan Pink had coined this for tech, you know, when Hollywood makes a movie, they bring together a team for that project, yeah. right? Of a director, a producer, actors, and then those people disperse and they come back together for another project. It's like the the ultimate cool. in the loosely coupled type project uh, management. And in a sense, that's what Provisors enables us to do. I've just got a couple of potential litigation situations come, come up and my firm doesn't directly handle litigation. So I'm Going to be partnering with litigators. And so from the client or company's point of view, it means you can get access to a team of professionals, uh, That's that cool. previously you'd have to go to some big, you know, huge firm for, to get that. And, you know, uh, just, you know then you probably would pay a lot and you wouldn't be able to necessarily get the best of everybody. (laughs) You'd get whoever that big firm could provide. That's right. Uh, So I'm seeing it as a way to provide better service to my clients on a project by project basis as needed to serve their needs.
0: That's awesome. And to your point, ProVisors is a national group. And so of course, if you're hearing this in Boston, there's a strong presence in Boston. If you're hearing this in Dallas, there's a strong growing presence here in Dallas. We just launched back in, I want to say April or so. Uh, we're in 2020 now. So, so fresh, but every day we're adding more and more professionals. So it's really cool to see it growing.
1: Yeah, but, absolutely. Uh, and, and it's letting us all uh, serve p- with COVID. Of course, you know, the silver yeah. lining of this horrible situation we're in is that by everyone going virtual, we can communicate with each other, partner with each other, work together from anywhere. And so for me, and I say this because many people aren't aware before I say it, as a patent yeah. attorney, I can represent clients located anywhere. I'm in Boston. Right. My law license is in Massachusetts, but I am also licensed before the US patent office, which means they don't care if my clients are located in Japan, and I have clients in Japan, I have clients Mm -hmm. in the UK or India, Uh, I can represent clients anywhere. And so that means clients who are looking for someone with my special expertise can turn to me, even if they're in Dallas, or they're in California, and I can work with them just as easily. And in fact, uh, our firm has been uh, virtual, distributed from day one, long before COVID, because we're techies, you know, we're computer yeah. people. We've set up our firm to work that way already from from the beginning.
0: That's great. So, Robert, as I've, as we've worked together, I I know you have a different uh, some different tools that can help with you know companies understanding the the patentability of their their technology. Uh, but yeah, you know, tell us more about what it's like to to work with somebody like you. You know, what's the process and mm-hmm. the steps that somebody would need to go through? Shed some light on that if you can.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the first thing that usually sparks someone's interest in coming to us is that they know they've developed or are in the in the midst of developing some technology that they that is different and unique and new in some way, and so. If you're in that situation, it's always worthwhile to go to a patent attorney and have at least an initial conversation. And then when I start working with a client or even speaking with a potential client, the, the basic points I make sure to touch on are from a technical perspective, what's new about this software? Often that's a new algorithm or a process it carries out, lets it do something more efficiently than before, or maybe even solves a problem that was never solved in the past. Uh, So I'll find out the technical side, but then just as important is from the business perspective to find out Mm -hmm. what competitive advantage uh, does this, would this give you? If you're successful in developing this into a commercial product, what advantage would this give you over your competitors? Conversely, what disadvantage would it be to your competitors if they were blocked from selling a competing product to you? Uh, those are not always exactly the same question. Uh, no. Yeah. So th- I step through a se- series of questions, and then there are some legal questions which I guide the clients through, which is uh, there's only certain types of software that really can be patented. So I will guide them through a series of questions about the software, how it works, what it does, to help me come to a conclusion about whether – patent protection is even applicable to this. And sometimes there's a combination of patent, copyright, trade secret protection, contractual protection that are appropriate. So we combine the technical, the business and legal considerations to come to a conclusion about advising the client about whether even to embark on what the part we can help them with, which is pursuing patent protection.
0: Got it. Now, I think a couple of questions come to mind when I'm kind of working with a company that's considering patenting. I think oftentimes it's how long does the process take? You know, how much work am I going to have to put into this versus you know how much work maybe the attorney? What what does that look like in terms of duration and just capacity? Yeah, client standpoint.
1: I mean, one of the biggest complaints for forever about patents have been that they they're very slow to obtain. Uh, mm-hmm. I will go into that, but I'll also say that there are now uh, options in place for speeding up the patent process. So, you know, by default uh, at the U.S. Patent Office it often takes two to five years from the time you file a patent application until the time you obtain a patent. And that's just because the patent office is very bogged down and backed up mm-hmm. with the huge volume of software patents it, uh, it receives. So, uh, But when you file the patent application, there is a certain degree of protection that you obtain from that date even though you cannot sue anyone for infringement until you obtain the granted patent, just filing the application gives you a few kinds of protection. For example, if another company files their own patent application on the same invention after you, they are blocked from pursuing that patent because you filed. So there's many ways in which just getting a patent application on file is extremely valuable, even though the process after that can be slow. But let me talk about the ways for speeding it up. Yeah. I'll, just, I'll just mention one, but I'll let your listeners know there are in fact now quite a few different ways for speeding up the process. And I've gotten patents for clients in as little as a year, uh, which is quite quite fast. And even for rapid software development cycles, if you come to me when you've just conceived of the invention, a year means you might obtain the patent before you've even launched the product, or maybe very shortly after. And the, the simplest way is you uh, can just pay the patent office an extra fee uh, for okay. speeding
0: things up. It's a cut in line. Okay. Yeah, yeah.
1: You just pay a fee. There's a few restrictions on what you can include in the patent application, but they're really not that restrictive at all. And if you pay this fee, uh, my firm doesn't charge any extra fee for that. We just pay the patent office the the extra fee. And uh, you normally get an initial response within six months and you can, I've gotten the patent within uh, as little as a year with that.
0: Wow, that's amazing. It's, it's a fast pass, if you will.
1: Yes, yes, that's right. They call it track one. Uh, the normal slower path is is track two and it's, it's very fast. I mean, I'll mention for companies out there that are working on uh, COVID related technology uh, that can be sped up now. Also, a variety of green technology, technology for improving energy efficiency. There's a few different technology areas where they will speed things up as well. Uh, if you've got an inventor who's age 65 or older, that's another basis. So, as I said, there's a oh. whole bunch of bases. And, you know, I do obtain patents internationally for clients, I've developed a network of patents patent firms in other countries who also specialize in software patents and if you obtain a a granted patent in one country uh, depending on what the country is you can then use that granted patent to speed up the the process for your patent in the u.s so you can often piggyback if you know you file Mm -hmm. one patent application in multiple countries once one country grants the patent, you can often use that to streamline the process in the other countries and,
0: and then reduce the cost as well. Got it. So, what um, are, are there any I don't know, um, uh, parameters or steps to take to kind of just see? instead of going through the one to two year, three year process and then being rejected, you know, is there anything that can be done on the front end to kind of say, okay, yeah, this is worthwhile or, hey, there's a good level of confidence we have to, that this will be patented?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, that's commonly the very first thing we do for our clients when they hire us is we do what's called a patentability investigation. Uh, First step is just for the client to educate us thoroughly about what they're, invention is, and to let us know what they know about their closest competitors. Often our clients are the best source of information about what else has been done because they're on top of the competition. So they educate us about all of that. And then we do some searching. We search for existing patents that might be similar to the Mm -hmm. client's invention. We search for other products. We search, just search the web for product announcements or product information. We search academic articles, do all kinds of searching. And then we take a look at all of that information, the information from the client, the information from our own searching, and apply the legal standards to all of that and come up with our own opinion of whether the invention is patentable. And uh, of course, a patent examiner might disagree with us, but that gives a good degree of confidence that we can use to advise the client about whether to move forward. And it's relatively inexpensive compared to moving forward with the entire process.
0: Got it, very cool. So Robert, you are, as I mentioned in the intro, the Named inventor or owner of over 25 patents, patent applications. I mean, tell, shed some light on that. Yeah. what's the, what, what's the your most your proudest uh, <laughs> patent, or you know maybe the the coolest thing? Maybe you'd love to share here.
1: In a sense, I'd say all of my patents are for software that helps to manage distractions and interruptions to help people be more focused
0: okay why haven't you sold this to me earlier what's going on i need this whatever it is just give it to me i need that so uh so there's
1: one set of patents that all uh, relate to software that lets you control and manage notifications on your devices that's one whole set of patents um and, you know, now, I mean, I started filing these back in around 2010 or so. Now there's a lot of software and inclu- even operating systems that, that allow you to uh, manage notifications. But these patents go into it in quite a lot of detail, a whole wide variety of features for um, managing notifications. Uh, there's a, a n- <laughs> and this is motivated by my own challenges as a patent attorney so i'm in a situation that so many of us are in where i both need to and want to be using technology in my work and often find it a struggle to stay focused while my devices are trying to grab my attention with notifications of emails coming in messages all kinds of things uh so uh this left puts basically puts the user in the driver's seat to manage when, how, why, and where you get notified of various things.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, let me tell you about another set of, a set of patents, uh, okay. which is similar, but um, uh, this is for when you are doing, doing some work on your computer and you get interrupted. This is software that reminds you to return to what you were doing uh, when you got interrupted. <laughs> <laughs> it's the, what was I doing? Uh, oh, and- <laughs> so much time lost every day on that. I, oh. I mean, you're probably like me. Very often, I'm, I'm immersed in thought, writing a document, and then uh, the phone rings or some urgent text message comes in. I attend to it. And then I often say out loud to myself, what was I doing before this? Yeah. <laughs> what do I have to get back. To? Oh yeah. <laughs> so uh, this this is uh, again uh, directed to software that keeps track of what you were working, both what you were working on, where you were in the process, and then intelligently reminds you to get back to. When I say intelligently, the challenge in designing this kind of software mm-hmm. is is almost a paradox in that if the software notifies you too much or too early to return to what you are doing, then it can introduce distractions, which is the kind of thing you're trying to avoid. (laughs) Yeah,
0: very interesting. Uh,
1: So I had to put a lot of thought into how to design this uh, to notify you in the minute. Here's an example would Mm -hmm. be that, you know, uh, uh, if you are working on a document and then let's say you get a call on your computer that you pick up on, on Skype or something else. Uh, if the software can monitor when you hang up that call. That's a good time to remind you, hey, return to that document you were working on before you picked up on the call, rather than notifying you during the call when it's more of a distraction yeah, that's than helpful. anything Right. Else. Good point. So, yeah. So. Um, Uh, that that's the patents I've obtained. And, uh, of course I use my skill as a patent lawyer, but, but also skill as a software developer. And, uh, yeah, it's been a lot of fun. And I've been mostly licensing these uh, patents to companies who are making use of them. And let me just mention this for those people who aren't aware of, of what I mean when I say licensing, because this is another Mm -hmm. service I provide for my clients, which is, you know, if you obtain a patent, it's, it's an asset. I mean, if you think of it like a building that you can rent, right, uh, you can lease a patent, which means giving another company permission to make products that use the patented technology. And you give them that permission, typically in exchange for a payment that they make to you, a licensing fee. And so many companies don't think of patents as a source of licensing revenue. No. And yet it's a whole other potential source of revenue. And, you know, I've been advising clients now in the COVID age when, you know, re- revenue sources may have slowed down or disappeared. You know, you can look at your patent portfolio. Uh, it's a good way of buffering against the loss of product and service sales revenue mm-hmm. to create an additional revenue stream from patent licensing and against some myths or things people aren't aware of is that you can license a patent to someone, whether or not you have ever made or sold the product based on your own patent. Okay. That's awesome. You patent a mousetrap. Let's say you design the mousetrap, you know it would work, but you haven't built it, you haven't sold it, you can license that patent to another company to give them permission to make the mousetrap. In fact, many individual inventors and small companies make use of that if they don't have the resources to manufacture and sell uh, the product themselves, just licensing the patent can be a very valuable way to make use of it.
0: Got it. No, that that's so smart. Um, I think oftentimes companies leaders they they feel like maybe they'll lose control mm-hmm. of their baby, right? Yeah, if they're yeah. doing that licensing. Any tips to maybe thwart that or yeah. kind of get around that?
1: Yeah, I would say you know uh, one is <laughs> the, the the blunt pragmatic one is look at what you could earn from this. That might be, but psychologically, the way I often phrase it is, you know, are you willing to trade off the control for the power, the revenue, everything else you could gain from licensing and ask how important is that control really to me? And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, I don't mean to make light of it. But uh, the other the other thing is that the great thing about licensing, as opposed to outright sale of a patent, is that a license is created pursuant to a written agreement that right. you enter into, right. and so you can negotiate that agreement to have terms in it that don't cede all of your control. And of course, it depends on the other party agreeing to those terms. But a common one is, um, and this is what I've done with my own patents is I license to you. You can now make products that use this patent in exchange for a fee. That means I won't sue you for infringement. That's what you're getting mm-hmm. out of this life. But I retain the right to also make my own products that incorporate my patent. I retain the right to license this to other companies. I've retained a lot of control. And so I'm getting in a sense, the best, best of both worlds. Now people are asking, how could you do that? Well, the basic trade-off between me licensing like that and just selling the patent, where I do give up control, is typically you'll get a much bigger payment for an outright sale of a patent. But what Mm -hmm. you're losing is that control. You're losing the ability to sell to anyone else. Uh, You can't sell your your building to two Two, different, two or three different people, right? <laughs> Makes sense, yeah. <laughs> you know, So these are all trade-offs, but you actually have a lot of control in deciding which of those trade-offs to engage in.
0: That's awesome. I love it. I, I, it's a revenue stream that rarely does any other company really consider. And th- this could be a highly, highly valuable thing to look into for your company right now. It's so great. So, Robert, you, you're also kind of in, in line with your um, your patents around the distraction, things like that. You're really big on mindfulness. Yeah. Right? Uh, tell us a bit more, you know, how, how did you get into that? And I know you've got a podcast around those things as well. We'd love for you, love for you to tell us more about those things.
1: Yeah, well, you know... Uh, I have a podcast called technology for mindfulness. It is about how to use technology to be more focused and productive and be more mindful and also how to use mindfulness to help you to be (laughs) more mindful uh, with your technology. So, uh, I come to mindfulness from a couple of different backgrounds. One is that I've studied martial arts since I was a kid. I've had a few different teachers and, uh, a couple of my teachers in particular, uh, brought a real mindfulness, uh, angle to, uh, okay. to, to how they taught martial arts. Uh, certainly, uh, you learn to be very mindfully aware of your entire body in martial arts, just like you would mm-hmm. in, in any sport, including in yoga and other, 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 uh, traditions that teach, uh, paying attention to your body, uh, in martial arts though, you also learn how to be, pay attention to your opponents. And to everything around you, it was always a really significant part of what I was taught. Was not just how to punch or how to block, right. but how to develop that ability to be aware, uh, even in the midst of your adrenaline pumping, in the midst of fear. You know, fear when someone's attacking you right. triggers triggers your body, your mind, emotions, and you know, I was definitely trained in how to stay uh, present. Uh, how to deal with what will naturally occur, which is the fight or flight response. Uh, And how to, you know, one myth, I keep talking about myths with patents, you know, one myth with martial arts training is that it teaches you how not to be afraid, let's say, when someone's Mm -hmm. attacking. There's a certain Mm -hmm. extent to which over time that is true. But what I found, though, it's even more valuable to learn how not to check out mentally when you are afraid <laughs> how to yeah. stay present and continue acting and making decisions in the face of fear and i'm sure you know that's true in business oh uh, yes <laughs> <laughs> it's not that we eliminate fear but what the real problem is when you get paralyzed by fear that's right. and you become unable to act or or the opposite, which is you become reactive to your fear and your fear gets in the driver's seat, so to speak, and just dictates how you act. Instead of you being able to step back and, okay, I'm afraid. I understand I'm afraid. Let me though look at the reality objectively, t- do what I need to do, take a breath, take a break, do other things to deal with the fear so that I can act rationally for my business or in a martial arts and con- act rationally while someone's attacking me. Uh, so that's my primary background, but then I started, uh, practicing and studying mindfulness meditation in earnest probably about six years ago now okay. and, uh, sitting meditation, uh, and I found it's a great complement to martial arts. And then where it all ties together is that as I found, uh, 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 I was struggling more and more with technology distraction, uh through the growth of the internet and mobile devices and social media and multitasking, increasing client demands through technology, you know, through messaging and all these things. I, the, the challenge I had was how can I run my business and do my work productively in a focused way in the midst of all of this. And so I experimented a lot on my own developed a lot of strategies and techniques. And then I wanted to to share that with people. And so that's when I launched Technology for Mindfulness is to share what I've learned. And I always tell people, I am very open about sharing all of my failures and failed experiments, you know? (laughs) And we all
0: thank you for that.
1: (laughs) It's very hard, you know, and uh, even with COVID. So I've been working from home for, primarily for a long time, and so I've I've learned a lot of techniques for being productive, working from home, and yet even for me. Switching to COVID, you know, from being 90% at home to 100% at home, no client or networking meetings or anything else in person, not being able to go to a library to work or something else just as a change of scene.
0: Right, yeah.
1: Uh, Those were a lot of the strategies I had adapted for having some variety to break them and not, you know, I, I even as someone who teach people how to do, had to develop new strategies in the face of COVID. Absolutely. Yeah. It's very challenging. It's an on ongoing challenge.
0: No, I'm right there with you. I'll tell you, I, I, be, I, I, with everything going on, right, and I'm sure I'm not alone. You kind of hit on this as well. Like I've had to – there have been times where I just need to stop, and I just need to – I have a front porch with some rocking chairs on it. I'll go out there um, and just, like, breathe, <laughs> you know, and just yeah. let my – my heart slow down a little bit, you know, and um, I I love my job. I love everything I do. I find myself being thrown into so many problems, you know, mm-hmm. and I uh, people view me as that solver of those problems, and it's never fast enough, right? And so <laughs> I I take a lot of that in, uh, but I've had to. I've caught myself feeling maybe some anxiety or maybe some stress I, Yeah, it's on another level than it was, let's say a year ago or so. Um, and absolutely. yeah, just taking the deep breaths and being outside and have a little six month old and going and just holding him and yeah. seeing him laugh and things, you know, that, that helps a lot as well. But uh, yeah, this is, this is an unprecedented time and it's, it's, I'm sure for a lot of people caused us to really find ways to, To deal with this in a positive way.
1: Yeah. And I think, you know, the other thing is just to be easy on yourself. Uh, You know, I've felt this and I've spoken to so many people, and these include very high achieving business people and other professionals say, you know, I hit a wall earlier in the day now than I used to now with COVID. And then they feel self judgment about that. What's wrong with me? Why yeah. can't I do this? I it, oh, it, I should, you know, whenever the word should comes up in your mind, we learn this in mindfulness practice <laughs> to notice that it's always a sign. That's a sign of some self-judgment and it's helpful through mindfulness practice, you'll learn to try to move away from the should to just see the reality for what it is. So in that case, the reality might be, I am feeling tired now. That's just a reality. Whether I should or shouldn't, or a different person would feel differently, well, that's not what I, Robert, am feeling at this moment. That's just uh, sometimes I've heard it said, look at yourself like a scientist, totally objectively observe. Yeah. Your, I'm feeling tired. That's the fact. <laughs> okay. So, what can I do yeah. about it? I can deny it and try to power through that. And maybe you can do that for a while, but that will catch up to you. So, even as I tell the really hard nosed pragmatist people, so oh, mindfulness yeah. too woo woo for me. And I say, mm-hmm. even if all you're concerned with is maximizing your own productivity, powering through that, at least if you do that day after day after day, is going to be a self sabotaging strategy. You know, hmm. I've seen studies where people have, uh, 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 even of in- intraday productivity, is that. You know, it's like a bell curve. Uh, If you don't take breaks and you just try to power through, there's a certain extent to which your productivity will go up and then it will plateau. And then you can spend another two hours basically getting five minutes of work done. So that's when the, when you hit the other oh, side man, of the bell curve. Speaking, yeah. I laugh because I, I've been there. <laughs> and so the, the, just again, I don't care what you think about mindfulness from a spiritual or other perspective. If right. you're only inc- interested in increasing your own productivity, it would be wise to become aware of when you've hit the plateau hmm. and do what you need to do, which is often going to be to take a break, whether for the rest of the day or just for an hour. Because you're fighting against the tide otherwise. And you're going to have health impacts and and all, all, all other kinds of things. You're going Im- to impact your sleep. But just from a pure productivity perspective, it's not wise. But I've struggled with it. I've had it during COVID where uh, you know, it was actually just a couple of weeks ago, I remember, uh, really struggling to stop and take a walk in the afternoon because of all the self judgment you know, uh, and it yeah, was just uh, for like 45 minutes and i I've been making yeah, myself food.
0: <laughs> I'm with you there. And Robert, this has been, uh, so far, I, I'd like to announce you're probably one of the most interesting men in the world. <laughs> this is awesome. Yeah. So many wonderful things to take away from this, but I'd love to move us into our lightning round Okay, questions. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, some of these can be quick answers. We might dig into some of them, but uh, we'll kind of see where it goes, but we'll start with this one. What do you wish you had known when you started on your career?
1: Oh, wow. You could
0: go tell your (laughs) uh, your younger self something.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I would say uh, as a lawyer, that really being a lawyer has nothing to do with what it looks like in television or movies. (laughs) (laughs) It's that high intensity, I want the truth. (laughs) (laughs) Almost none of it involves arguing or debating about the law. (laughs) Uh, You know, most of it, uh, I, I often think to enjoy your career, you have to enjoy all of the routine, mundane stuff that takes up 99 percent of your time and i wish i would have um shadowed a lawyer maybe for some time just to be a fly on the wall and see Mm -hmm. what their work was really like Uh, and i have figured out ways to make it enjoyable and satisfying and productive and all this for myself but it took a while i think because of that culture shock of the difference between the reality on the ground and the cultural idea of what being a lawyer is like. And when I, I sometimes I'm on panels for people considering going into law and I don't tell them not to do it, but that's what I tell them I say, meet a lawyer, shadow a lawyer, get an internship, right, yeah. something like that so you get yourself into the real world and see how good of a fit it is for you.
0: Yeah, that's great advice. So who or what has influenced you the most? Wow. Well, as you can see, I have a a lot of
1: wide ranging interests. Mm -hmm. I think growing up, I was really influenced in technology by some of the big science, popular science writers like Isaac Asimov, uh, Carl Sagan, Mm -hmm. you know, because I didn't grow up in a family of scientists or engineers, but I was always really curious about it. Um, you know, I was, I went to public schools with great teachers, but not places where I could really delve into science. Mm -hmm. And so it was those people mainly who were writing about it, bringing science to a level where as a kid, even I could understand it and enjoy it and, and be excited about it. And so I'm really grateful, uh, to, to anyone, to those people who influenced me and to everyone today who is helping science and technology be understandable to people.
0: Absolutely. No, Isaac Asimov. I mean, he's a, he is, I mean, how would you describe him? He is just a phenomenal, would you even call it sci fi? But it's, it's,
1: he was everything. But yeah.
0: Sci- Facts, right?
1: Yeah. He wrote science fact. He wrote science fiction. <laughs> he wrote about religion. I mean, he wrote humor books. He was a real a Renaissance man uh, in many ways. And again, made the most complex things so mm-hmm. easily understand, and always with a story. Behind them, you know, when he wrote about physics, he'd tell you about the lives of the physicists and how they invented things and how they came up with certain ideas. It was o- always so entertaining as well and, and, and engrossing. A uh, very unique person and very influential on me.
0: That's awesome. I'm going to have to dig back into his books. It's a great reminder. Appreciate that. Is there anything in particular you're learning about right now? Uh,
1: well, I'm always reading, I'm probably always reading about like 15 <laughs> books at one time. Yeah. And here's just something I'll admit about distraction. I, <laughs> you know, these days I do almost everything by audiobook. Uh, You know, and it's kind of an admission where I feel some self-judgment. Robert, you should be able to read books. But you know what? In my work, I'm reading the equivalent of a book or two a day probably. All the time, I'm sure, yeah. and, And writing the equivalent of a book or two a week. And so I think that part of my brain just gets... Tired. Yeah. And right. but I want to keep reading. So I do it almost all by audiobook. Uh I've gone a couple of things I'm reading now are going back to reading uh, futurism from a long time ago. I'm reading a uh, Future Shock by Alvin Toffler, which is I couldn't believe it was written in wow. 1970. You know, for those <laughs> two people who don't know, uh I don't think I think he died not too long ago, maybe in the last decade, but he was a f- early futurist. Uh, And if you read his stuff from 1970, can't believe that 50 years ago, it's kind of shocking how prescient and still applicable it is to today. You know, he's just talking about impact of computers, which of course seemed primitive back then to now, but how the availability of data was changing businesses. The availability of plane flight was making it possible for people to commute, you know, 500 miles or have marriages that were long distance. and things that often people talk about as being fairly recent. You know, he was on top of those at the cusp of them as being trends, And the term future shock was about the psychological impact, really the state of, of, disruption it can create for us psychologically to have our worlds constantly being upended by new and the lack of grounding it can it can feel like and just think about how much that's amplified you know by orders of magnitude since then but he was very insightful uh about the whole phenomenon so i'm enjoying going back and and reading that now
0: wow that's incredible you know, I have a, a friend of mine named Mike Courtney. I may have to introduce you to him. He's a futurist okay. um, here in the Dallas area. Every time we speak, he blows my mind. <laughs> He's been a guest on our show a couple of times. So if you get a chance to listen to
1: Yeah, him, I'll definitely I'm, go yeah. back and listen to those. I mean, I'm amazed by people who really know what they're doing. Uh, you know, uh, as futurists now, it's always mind blowing to me.
0: Yeah, I've seen some of his work and it's phenomenal. It blows me away. Um, so yeah, another plug there, Mike Courtney. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely, friend uh, of So, what, Robert, what's your coffee of choice?
1: Okay, so I have lifelong been on a quest to reduce sugar intake. It's one of my oh, vices, but I do love I do love a vanilla latte. That's for sure.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> good. Uh, from any particular place? Or? No,
1: not not oh really, God. not really. And there's a few good local non-chain coffee shops around me now that I do really like. I do my best to support the the non-chains for sure.
0: That's good. What about your adult drink of choice? Uh,
1: you know, it's a tough, that's a tough question. I, I actually don't drink alcohol. So, uh, I don't, I just never. That's awesome. Never. <laughs> I just, yeah, I it just, that. It is it's what good. it is. It is what it is. Uh, yeah. You know, I never have. So, I'm not sure what else, usually people mean alcohol when they say adult drink. Yeah. So, I'm not sure, uh, you know, uh, I probably probably don't have one. I could give it some more, some okay. more thought. fair enough, fair yeah. enough.
0: Um, what uh you know what podcasts are you listening to right now if any
1: yeah uh, that's good of course yours uh, I that's listen <laughs> I listened- to, hear that. I to um, a few mindfulness related podcasts in fact there's a few I wouldn't call them competitors uh, doing technology and and mindfulness uh, digital mindfulness uh, uh, so I listen to a few of those there's a few and I'm embarrassed I don't remember the names there's a few other ai and business related podcasts that i listen to to try to stay on top of uh stuff from the business side of things that's great yeah and are you would you say you're a morning person or a night person night person another lifelong struggle uh what i've noticed is uh for work i've had to adapt to be a morning person but if I have just a few days to not have to be on schedule, I immediately, grab, yeah. I think my natural hours are about, you know, get started at 10 and stay up until around one or two in the morning if I if I
0: had no yeah. brains. I, same way. I, I catch a second wind <laughs> Yeah. about 9.30 yeah. or 10 and I yeah. can't help it. Just keep going. Uh, so uh, along those lines, are there any routines you set for yourself? and maybe some hacks you're willing to share? I don't know.
1: Yeah, I don't know about hacks. I, I, I am a very routine-oriented person. You know, mm-hmm. and I would say I, I'm always a l- little cautious or I have caveats about recommending them to other people because there's there's people are amazing. There's such wide variety among people. Mm-hmm. I realize that not everyone is as routine-oriented as I am. Some people would find, you know, the amount of routines I follow to be like, stultifying, (laughs) but to to me, because it's how my mind naturally, my mind and body kind of naturally work for me, it's liberating. Once I can have routines in place and they're just kind of there and I'm on somewhat autopilot, then I feel like my mind can be open to, 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 to being experimental in the other spaces in my life, if that makes sense
0: does. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, the, I don't have any extremely surprising routines in terms of getting, getting up, uh, get up, shower, brush teeth, eat, dress, all that. Mm-hmm. I do all that in a certain order. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, and a lot of just kind of normal daily routines are like that. Maybe the one surprising one, and this is part of what I teach or suggest is, uh, I schedule things like checking email throughout the day. Mm-hmm. I put it on my calendar. Uh, I don't always adhere to it a hundred percent, but the fact that it's there as a reminder and that I try to adhere to it does help me to reduce the amount of just random email responding in a reactive way.
0: Yeah, that's good. It's a time blocking. Time blocking. Exactly.
1: Yeah. 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 And I do it for email. I do it for a few other very common routine functions within the business. Otherwise, I find like I would just be either forgetting to do things or returning to things so often that it was distracting and nonproductive.
0: Yeah, good point. And how how would you classify yourself, introverted or extroverted?
1: I'm pretty introverted. It's funny. People, yeah. when they
0: interview me or either or
1: I interview <laughs> them on the podcast, they say, you're so animated. And uh, in one-on-one interactions, I tend to be a lot more extroverted. But like, put me in a party.
0: <laughs> <It's> the worst.
1: <laughs> you know, it's it's funny. The tooth and my friends have teased me about this. If there's a if there's a dog at a party, I'll gravitate to the dog. Oh gosh! Yeah. And I also I also play music. So if there's a piano at the party, it's a That's way cool. that I can be kind of entertaining but stay to myself. So you know.
0: yeah, kill two birds with one stone. There, That's I'm good. quite
1: introverted. Otherwise.
0: Got it. And what, what's something you look forward to most each weekend?
1: Uh, playing music, uh, challenging during COVID, but, uh, I have a few different groups of people I play music with and we've been finding ways to do it online. Uh, if anyone wants to contact me offline, I, and another techie music just found a solution for playing together live online in real time. Oh, that's
0: cool. (laughs) We thought it wasn't
1: possible. (laughs) Wow. Uh, So we do that. And I've been getting, in fact, this weekend on Sunday, I'm getting together with a group of people outdoors, socially distanced. Socially distanced, okay. (laughs) To play music together. Uh, and i really look forward to it. and it's actually the limitations on that have been one of the hardest things to deal with uh, during covid is
0: not being able to get together and play music with people absolutely as much. yeah i was hoping um uh, wearing a mask would help make my voice sound better when singing <laughs> out loud but uh, i found that that's not not the case doesn't work that way <laughs> well robert you, you successfully navigated the lightning round good oh, you did it so Robert, we'll we'll wrap things up here with the show. What's it What's it like for a customer to reach out to you? What are some ways to get a hold of you?
1: Yeah, easiest way is to go to blueshiftip.com. B l u e s h i f t ip.com, and for your guests i'll give them my direct email address (laughs) oh
0: wonderful (laughs) which is
1: rplotkin at blueshiftip.com uh you can always reach out to us there Uh, i know everyone says this but we literally are in the middle of totally revamping our website make it easier to access our podcasts our blogs and all the other kinds of free information we have on there that should be up pretty
0: soon yeah and Robert, I'd be remiss if I didn't highlight our collaborative effort on our the 2020 mid-year state of AI report. Yeah. You know, we hit on, um, I loved how it, it came together. You know, I think I outlined some of the key trends, you outlined the the aspects and impacts to uh, patentability around some of those trends. And um, quite honestly, I think it's probably one of the most content-rich uh, pieces that i've put out there um and so i i'd say you know go to i'd certainly post it on louderco.com and check that out um and i'm sure you've got it on uh, some different places as well
1: yeah and i i and i'm not saying this to toot our horns i don't know of any other ai reports that combine the technical business and legal aspects of ai like this absolutely so i really enjoyed i certainly couldn't have done it Uh, On my own, I only contributed the patent and legal related stuff. So I really enjoyed that collaboration so that we could put something out that I, I think is really valuable to people and useful and provides them with content that they can't get elsewhere.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Robert, thank you so much for making the time to be a guest on our show today. It's been awesome. I think our listeners learned a ton today on so many different topics. Uh, can't thank you enough.
1: Oh, I really enjoyed it. Thanks thanks so much for having me.
0: My pleasure. And thank you for listening to the Louderco Dallas-based innovators podcast, da- uh, Boston-based special edition. <laughs> I'm Andrew Louder signing out. That's our show for today. We hope you took away something valuable. Be sure to visit Louderco at louderco.com for more. Thank you again and stay tuned for more from Dallas-based innovators.